Hello, welcome to Brownline Church's Midweek Podcast. I'm Vince, and I'm here with Kyle. Hello. And today our topic is going to be Bible references that aren't what we think. We have a huge value on drawing from the Bible, and so we do that regularly as a steady diet for our community in terms of spiritual health. But why do that? There are challenges to that. As somebody who didn't grow up in the American Christian subculture, uh, but still certainly was exposed to the Bible a great deal just by virtue of living in America, there are a lot of things that um, you believe the Bible to be uh, saying or uh, condoning or recommending, or there are a lot of like, I mean, the Bible is sort of interwoven into our popular culture. So there's lots of stories or anecdotes that you can kind of take and, you know, kind of run with and think, oh yeah, obviously the Bible is this, or the Bible condones X, Y, or Z. And so some of the more challenging ones are like, obviously the Bible is anti-gay, or obviously the Bible is anti-feminist, or Obviously, the Bible, you know, paints God to look like a white wizard up in the sky or puppet master controlling everything. Um, But uh, one of the I think one of the most fun things about uh, doing my own investigation with the Bible and certainly one of the most fun things that Kyle and I ever get to do when we're batting around ideas for the church is when we come across things that are like, oh, these are Bible references that kind of blow up a lot of those popular beliefs. And, and they do so in a way that's so freeing and so like, oh, wow, this is awesome. Look at all that's packed into X, Y, or Z passage. Oh my gosh, it's, it's so much more inviting and it's such a better picture of God, a God that I actually am attracted to. I think, you know, as somebody that grew up uh, going to church and having Bible stories and Bible being a pretty significant presence in my life from, from as long as I can remember, I think to me... Uh, the the joy of a conversation that says, oh, maybe uh, this part of the Bible that you just uh, ass- were assuming was talking about this is actually not talking about that, or uh, here's something that people kind of just take as a given that the Bible is trying to communicate this, uh, and then reassessing that. I think the reason I find these enjoyable is because I think um, it's even less about what e- any one of those passages are or are not saying. It, to me, it's a matter of feeling a sense of like freedom um, from the sense of like uh, what I experienced a lot growing up is like, well, of course, the Bible is just obvious. And these are the obvious truths. And usually they're just reinforcing like what my church is saying, what the culture is saying. And it felt very uh, kind of heavy. It felt very uh, ah. it felt very like scary. Like if I even ask questions of the Bible, uh, I'm putting something in jeopardy. Because so clearly the pastor finds this so obvious and clear. And the Why fact would you like, question it, Kyle? Ah, yeah. Exactly. The fact that I'm questioning it actually, to me, felt very oppressive. And it felt very like I felt scared and anxious. And so these kind of conversations are mostly joyful for me because it's kind of like throwing off the burden of huh. this kind of faint this kind of fake sanctimonious approach to the Bible, which kind of uh, undermines critical thinking and undermines <laughs> honest questions. And rather than in turn, I think it's really helped me engage the Bible more honestly. Um, but I'm curious for you, uh, any anything that you've come across uh, recently or anything like that that has kind of sparked this in you? Yes, yes, I have one in mind um, that I I literally learned yesterday. And it was mm. one of those experiences of just like, oh, this is awesome. And just not to not to leave alone what you just said because I thought it was really interesting. Before I before I share, 
I like this. So basically what we're going to have is we're going to have two levels of freedom here. Like the, uh, what, what I, what I hope in sharing some of our favorite examples of this Bible references that don't say what you think, um, that we would, we would experience a great deal of freedom by the content of them. But then like Kyle was saying, there's actually, there's like a meta freedom above that, which is Mm -hmm. especially if you've grown up in a context where maybe, uh, phrases like, you know, uh, biblical were thrown out and, you know, and you were just supposed to accept that whatever they were saying was in fact biblical when you were like, wait, really? Like, wait, doesn't, what, really? Is that what God is like? Or is is that what Jesus is saying there? Um, And uh, and perhaps you have a chance to experience some freedom that way too. So fun. All right. Uh, Yeah. So uh, one example that I I learned yesterday is um, the commandment uh, to uh, take a Sabbath rest day, right? Okay, so we're familiar mm-hmm. with uh, this is the get Moses um, receiving the Ten Commandments and then passing it on to the people of Israel. And one of the commandments is to uh, work six days and rest on the seventh. For that's what God did, and and it's and it's passed on. And so um, wha- I, I learned this uh, from uh, Dr. Miguel de la Torre, who I listened to an interview with him, uh, and he explains. That uh, in general, when most of us hear this, uh, probably every American who's ever uh, heard this passage preached on or brought into conversation, you know, S- Sabbath is not a controversial issue, right? So it's it doesn't even have to be something that we heard in a in a religious setting. It's just like, oh yeah, you absolutely like the message is you should uh, you should you should always make room for rest. You know, if you mm-hmm. if you're a workaholic, mm-hmm. if you you know throw yourself into everything like you're going to eventually overwork and you've got to you can't just you know like not rest you have to make space for that it's good for you um there, it's like built into like who god is so it's great you should rest uh and that's wonderful right like that's an important message i totally need to hear that as somebody who bends toward workaholism and and has at different points in my in my life struggled with that um but what what he uh what he uh talks about is he said he um, he interacted once with a pastor who uh, was uh, a an immigrant uh, from a Latin American country, and his congregation was mostly migrant workers. and uh, And so he brought us uh, brought this passage up. Uh, you know, God uh, commands that we um, work six days and then rest on the seventh. And uh, and th- and this pastor speaks to his congregation and asks them, uh, "How many of you?" Um, uh, got had five days work uh, this week, and like you know, most of the hands in the congregation go up. That's good. Now, how many of you had six days work um, uh, this the, uh, this week, and only like a few hands go up? And then he asks the question: So, how are we to take seriously God's command to uh, uh, what or what what does this say about our society? that uh that we are not able to take seriously this command to work six days and then rest on the seventh and it was just this total like mm-hmm. flip upside down this scripture of what if it's actually not about rest what if you know it from some perspectives from a marginalized perspective this is about the dignity and the need and the living wages provided or the purpose provided by working six days, which is not a granted. And it was just so, I, I, my, I, I just like the, the door kind of flew open of realizing like, look at the social, emotional and political implications of this commandment to work six days and rest on the seventh that goes so much beyond just 
make sure that you're resting, which again is a good message. But what if we saw this as saying something like, this is, this is about the society that we live. Do we make sure that all people are able to work an appropriate amount and then rest an appropriate amount and have that rhythm? No, we don't. I don't think we do that as a society. And so, uh, so this scripture has such a bite and a power to speak into our lives as a result of that, to speak into our, our society as a result of that. So that was one that I learned yesterday. I was just like, oh, wow. Like I, I felt, I mean, it, it, you know, it's, it's challenging, sobering uh, realizations, but it just felt so, it, it felt like it spoke so much to the moment, especially right now with like, we're all out of work, right? And, and maybe now we have eyes to see what is being said there. Uh, on on a much greater level. Hmm. I think the thing that strikes me about that <clears throat> is one thing that revealed a, a different uh, meaning in that for you is the existence of power dynamics. Yes. And I think to me, this was the key. Uh, culture and power dynamics were the key to um, uh, taking the Bible from this kind of somewhat oppressive experience for me into this incredibly liberating, helpful, meaningful experience to me um and i think it's because the bible is written to and from the perspective of largely marginalized and oppressed and so when it is written from that perspective and then we today read it myself a privileged white middle-class american man read it from a from a position of power and privilege and read those same words, uh, I can take things that are, are trying to communicate solace and comfort and trying to communicate a sense of, I understand your struggle and speak into me a boldness and a, a kind of experience of life that actually I think dishonors what God desires. I think mm. they, that the Bible, uh, they kind of, largely speaking, if you are wanting to have a helpful understanding, is when it is speaking to and from uh, positions of, of people who are experiencing marginalization or struggle, it is speaking exaltation, like uplifting them. It's resonating yeah. with the struggle. And to people with power, it is humbling them. I mean, Jesus says, uh, came to humble the exalted and exalt the humbled. This is the kind of lens I think has most helped me, helped me read the Bible. And I think one thing I can think about is I remember when I was in high school, there was a passage talking about how we must overcome our persecution and not, not that the, our persecution is a New Testament passage of Paul talking about uh, persevering in the face of persecution. And somebody in, our, in, in the group, I remember her asking, like, what, what persecution are we pushing past here? <laughs> somebody asked that. Yeah, she was like, what persecution are we experiencing? And I remember very, like, patronizingly uh, condescendingly telling her, well, the, 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 the kind of persecution we push back today is when we stand up for our belief in Jesus and that the people in school just really give us a hard time about that. That's the persecution we're experiencing. It's, it's people not understanding the moral grounds that we're standing on today. And she's like, really? What, what's the persecution there? And I was like, well, sometimes they can be kind of mean to us when <laughs> And I just remember her being like relentlessly being like, I told her that's not a good argument. Sixteen-year-old me was like so identifying with the persecution that I experienced. I do not think that word means what you think it means. Exactly. And then as an adult, I realized that wow, the American, especially the white suburban American church, has really embraced an identity of persecuted in a way that I think is totally 
dishonoring uh, to what the Bible is actually talking to. It is talking to people in positions that don't have power, talking to people in positions who are experiencing actual oppression of their rights. And when you read it from that perspective, like if I take a step back and I, I think about uh, the experience of people in this world that experience real persecution, of uh, people, let's say, in the Middle East that for the sake of Jesus are trying to, to express uh, their experience of faith, and that is something that if it's known, it, it moves kind of op economic opportunity, as well as in some places can equal, equal imprisonment. Yes, Danger, to them. Yeah. yeah, like you need to hear like uh, uh, hope is there, push on, there is still good for you in the face of persecution. But when I experience, when I read persecution, and I think it's speaking to me as a privileged American, to me, I have to create a sense of persecution. And therefore mm. the persecution that comes towards people of privilege and power is a loss. It is a sense of I'm losing what I have opposed to what real persecution is, is I'm being prevented from actually even getting to experience any of it. And I think you see that a lot in our country to me. And I think if I could speak to the American suburban churches in one voice would be read the passages about humbling the exalted. Those are speaking yeah. to you. Let's keep those passages where we're exalting the humbled and let's let that be to other refugees of our country, the people that have been detained on our border, people who are undocumented immigrants in our country that are, are, are not eligible for stimulus checks right now. Let's think about uh, the African-American community that is disproportionately experiencing violence and economic lack of opportunity. Like that's where the passages of exaltation are for. They're, they're not for you. Well, you're really one-upping me with your example. My example was like a verse in Exodus. Your example was the entire Old Testament um, and much of the New Testament is, it, that, that's what you got for me. Thanks for that, Kyle. Um, but then, no, that's good. That, that's a very big example of this, which is um, power dynamics. When you, when you, when you remember who, uh, what, what the audience is and what the, and what the voice uh, of the author is, that they're coming from marginalized perspective and writing to other marginalized people, um, and then we we try to draw parallels to today. It it's just really important that you're drawing correct parallels, and in, and and a and a pretty not sound parallel to draw would be to put people like me and Kyle in the shoes of a an exiled Israelite when you're reading the prophets in the Old Testament. So great, that's awesome. Um, okay, any other? What's another example that you can come up with, Kyle? You know, uh, another one that I was just thinking about when you threw this at me is uh, the first time I had a more in-depth reading of the parable of the seeds, the scattering of seeds. Oh, okay. Uh, mm -hmm. So there's the, the parable of, you know, seeds, seeds are scattered, some are on rocky land and they don't grab roots, some are amongst the thorns and they're choked out, some of them are on the path and it's shallow, and then some of them find good soil and they bear fruit, and this is an example for the kingdom of God. And then I kind of never really read into the second half of that passage where Jesus kind of talked a little bit more about people coming to him. And my initial read of that is that it was, it was, it was like a, a warning to me of like you better be careful that you don't become like one of those people that seed are, that what that didn't grow yeah uh -huh. yeah like somehow it, seeds have agency all of a sudden and they're deciding <laughs> what soil they were thrown into uh, and and that the, I always kind of view that up as like there's you know these these threats to me having yeah. a thriving experience of faith that I need to avoid 
um, was kind of my read on it. I need to make sure that I'm, I'm not in thorns, I'm not in rocky soil, that I'm not shallow, that I'm in good soil. Um, and then I, I remember I had a, a professor that was first laying out this passage and we were is actually uh, at seminary, one of the, it was a Greek class and we were working through this passage of Greek and was essentially talking about how the whole first part of the passage is really not the point of the passage. The whole, the whole thing is building to the second part where Jesus, uh, they, he finishes this kind of ambiguous story and everyone's kind of like, what on earth is he talking about? And then he says, you know, those who have eyes, let them see. Those who have ears, let them hear. And then he leaves and those who pursued him, he then uh, promised uh, the kingdom of heaven yeah. is yours. He, sa- he says the kingdom of God belongs to you, uh, to the people who followed after him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And essentially saying the point of the passage is not figure out what soil you're in. There's a sense of like, yes, there are lots of dynamics as to why uh, the, the message of hope that Jesus is communicating maybe does not resonate with different people. And a lot of those things are out of our control, just like the soil a seed is thrown into. However, what is the thing we have control is when we have questions, we pursue. And it was a yeah. sense of like, what the point of this passage is, is actually where the fruit of faith is, is those that actually pursued Jesus. Not those in this conversation we're having right now that we're told, well, obviously this is the case. And they're like, well, I'm just not going to ask questions there. It's those that questioned and pursued Jesus in those questions uh, that he, he says found the community. Yeah, he, I've, I love that one. That's one of my favorites. He, he uses another image right after that as he's speaking to those who, who came with him to the next to ask more questions. He says, do you light a candle and then put a bowl over it? He says, no, what is hidden is meant to be revealed. And, and you know, a light is meant to be put on a, a high place so that it can shine all around. And uh, there's this idea of like, no, like uh, the, the truth that we want, the life that we want is not meant to be hidden off forever, but we need to seek after it. We need to actually pursue it. It is not going to be, uh, you know, uh, straightforward and obvious. It needs to be pursued with great in- intent and pursued at risk. And, uh, and I love that. Okay. Uh, that's awesome. Another great example. Um, all right. Another one that, um, that I got to, uh, speak on at Brownline, um, I, I think a year or two ago, um, is another parable from uh, Jesus, the parable of the talents. Uh, and so this one is where a landowner gives, um, he says he's going away to another kingdom and he gives his, uh, his, his talents, his money um, to uh, three different servants. And then he, he tells them to go and put it to use and they do that and he goes away. And then the, the, this landowner returns and is wanting to settle accounts with uh, with those um, the the three servants that were given uh, money, and so the the first one says that you know oh I, I put it to use and um, I earned, you earned uh, ten more and uh, and the the uh, landowner is thrilled by this and then the next one says I earned five more and the landowner is thrilled by this and then the last uh, um, servant says. Um, he's, it's very like provocative language. It says like, uh, I knew you were a hard man reaping where you don't sow. Uh, and so I hid my money. Um, here, here is, here is what you, uh, what you asked for, uh, in return. And, um, and the, and the, the end of the parable is like this really like scary kind of finish because the landowner says, you're, you're horrible. I'm going to, you know, cut you to pieces and all those who oppose me uh, cut you to pieces and, uh, and so you're, you'll be, you'll be cast off and I'm going to give all that I gave to you over to the other servants who have, you know, who I've already given more to. 
Um, and, and then it finished with, for those who have, um, those who have more will be given more and those who have less will be, will have everything taken away. And it's always been one of these, like, what on earth pastor, especially for the way that ends. Cause it seems so out of step with the rest of Jesus's message. Those who have more, more will be given. And those who have less, nothing like even what they have will be taken away from them. I mean, it's just kind of wild. And um, I, this, this, um, this professor I mentioned before, who I learned this Sabbath, uh, thing, Dr. Miguel De La Torre, he, uh, he had a great turn of phrase. He says, sometimes when we, when we are trying to interpret passages in familiar ways, we, we, uh, we are saving Jesus from Jesus. And, uh, like, cause it's like, oh, like what? He sounds like a bad guy here. So we need to, we need to like cover over that confusion to make him sound like a good guy. And whenever you're doing that, uh, Dr. De La Torre's uh, suggestion was like, I think we might be reading it from the wrong perspective. And that's often what we have to do with that because that passage is generally uh, generally thrown out to us, uh, the parable of the talents to say like, you know, so whatever you have, like use it for good, use it for God, you know, and don't, don't squander what you've been given. Like that third servant who is going to be, you know, even what he has will be taken away from him. So that's the traditional view. But the, uh, the reading I was uh, uh, introduced to is uh, it's a reading from Latin American theology, and uh, the their uh, suggestion is that this this passage is about protest, and the hero is the third servant, and so it is this very like interesting way to take it, and so uh, and the key is to is to see like the third servant calls out the master, calls out the landowner as somebody who reaps where they don't sow. They are a they are a a uh, somebody who takes advantage of other people. They are uh, somebody who is uh, is, is the is like a, a the source of societal injustice. And so uh, and so what uh, what the the third servant is a picture of is nonviolent protest. Whereas the like it, it, the parable t- then tells a story of like the the entire world around you will be. Uh, tempted to you will be tempted to just play the game, play the uh, the the exploitive uh, take advantage of other people game and just make money for the for the big landowner. And what the third servant shows us is a way to stand your ground even when you will face uh, great uh, persecution as a result of it. Because to stand with the marginalized, to stand with those who are on the underbelly of society, when you stand in solidarity with them, you're going to get you know the violence of the powerful coming at you. And, uh, and, and this third servant does that. And so he's the hero of the story, uh, not the first two servants. Uh, and that I've, again, was another one where I, when I first like was it, it again, like I, I've heard sermons about like the whole talents and, and, and be irresponsible with what you've been given and been very like, Oh wow, that, that was a good sermon. I've, I felt helped by those, but I heard this and I was just like, man, this is something else. I mean, this is, this is bringing me into, this is bringing me freedom and, and making me think about uh, my, my world and, and the way that I, that I live within it in a way that I wasn't before. And that is, that, that's the magic of it. Yeah, that's, I think just really helpful. Uh, and I think one of the things you're noticing here is uh, how being exposed to theologians and writers who are not Western um, American European folks, mm-hmm. how that really makes a big difference because uh, <laughs> they just they understand uh, culture differently than we understand culture, and so the lenses that they're reading the Bible from are different than our lenses. And then, uh, honestly, one of the things that's always astonished me is that American uh, Western culture is actually on the polar opposite on every single cultural spectrum. 
So in one way, you might pose that every other culture in the world is better positioned to understand the Bible than, Amer- than Westerners, because <laughs> just culturally speaking, we're on we're guilt we're on the chain. Top. We're yeah. guilt chain that the the, the culture of the Bible were were uh, were guilt innocence. They are on our shame. We're internal locus of control. There are external locus of control, and so on and so forth. And I think for me. Uh, that's that's been really uh, helpful is just trying to read people that are not just western uh, american european thinkers and, and i think one of the stories here is actually the the parable of the prodigal son Ooh, uh, okay the story of you know the prodigal son goes to his father and asks for some money back his inheritance early takes Mo- inheritance. money bags <laughs> ask for some money bags <laughs> uh and then he goes and takes his inheritance and squanders it in parties uh, and then kind of comes home dragging his tail between his legs and um, then his father shockingly welcomes him back and loving it and uh, he, he comes back trying to look to be a slave and his father's like no 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 you're my son. Beautiful story I, I think it's yeah super powerful but uh, there's a, a few about a decade ago they took a bunch of American sto- students told them to read the story and a bunch of Russian students and told them to read the story and then highlight what was the meaning you found in it and the Americans came out with pretty much exactly what you would think the meeting would be. Um, and, but there was a piece that all of the Russians had that none of the Americans had. And it's a little part of the passage where it talks about at the point that uh, the, the son had squandered the wealth, uh, a famine hit the land. And so therefore, he went and he ended up eating the pig slop and then deciding to go home. And the, all of the Russians picked up on this because they had, recent, they had all in their own lifetime experienced famine in Russia, huh. something that Americans... They noticed, they noticed that detail in the story. And the way that that shifted it for them is the, the, pers- the point of the story is not just about the moral bankruptcy of the youngest son. It is the unpredictability of natural chaos. It is the fact that we can never rely on our own wealth. It is, it is those that we love that we must rely on because you could have all the money in the world and think you're gonna be okay and you waste it and then famine hits the land and then your money is all gone and you have nobody to turn to. And the story of this is God loves us like a family. He's always well, willing to welcome us in and we must put our trust in the relationships of those that we love, not uh, our wealth, because at any given moment, something like a famine can hit the land, something that totally flew over the head of all the Americans. Do. Wow. Yeah. So none of the American, like when they, when they asked this question, none of the Americans even like mentioned the famine as an important thing in this, in the, they didn't the mention it as a part of the story. Like, and the funny part wow. is when I read the study, I had to go back and read the passage again because I Cause you, you, didn't, you didn't remember. Times, <laughs> but I had never ever thought there was a famine in the there land. There was a famine? Yes. Are we sure about this? And, it, and wow, that's a fascinating my cultural lens. And the truth is, living in the pandemic right now, that part of the story feels really, really meaningful. Of mm. Like, where am I banking my sense of trust and security in a world that can fall apart at any given moment? And yep. what was true is that son had a trustworthy father and that mm. a trustworthy family. And that's what, where our sense of identity and care is found in that, not in my job that is uh, at any moment can disappear because of what's going on, not in all those other things. And to me, it's like, oh, wow, I totally missed that because of the way that my culture had blinded to That's really good. Another thing that's perhaps a little controversial, but you know, I think to me has felt really helpful is uh, that really it's hard to create a clear sexual ethic when you read the Bible, that mm-hmm. there's, 
you know, I think to me, sex is probably the biggest, like most taboo subject when you come in terms of Christianity and stuff. And uh, to me, certainly the thing that you might like be be prone to believing that's what most of the Bible is about, right? <laughs> exactly. If you ask my 16 year old self who hadn't read the Bible fully himself before, I would bet like 97% of the Bible was about sex. And then <laughs> maybe the other half was about like how you, how you treat kids at school. But, um, okay. got it. No, but the, the challenge with this is that in the modern experience of Christianity, we, there's a very clear picture of like, well, the Bible paints this really clear sexual or or relational ethic that there's a sense of marriage between a man and a woman this kind of very traditional american family unit uh, one mother one father and kids is this kind of biblical ethic of sexuality and marriage and it's actually it's just really hard to get there from reading the bible um and the challenge is you know you have adam and eve in the beginning that are kind of set up to be perfect partners for each other um, and then there's also a reference in Matthew, Jesus talking about how, you know, when a, when a, a man and a woman get married, they, they're leaving their parents and then becoming cleaved to each other. Um, and I certainly would say for me personally, the traditional experience of marriage and sex being a piece of that has, has certainly borne out as a healthy expression and, and for my understanding in life. However, in the Bible, you have polygamy all over in the, especially yeah. in the old testament yeah. you have people taking mistresses you have you know jacob like one of the heroes of the old testament who really wants to marry rachel but can't marry rachel and so settles for leah her her older sister that her uh, father says you can marry rachel but only if you also marry leah and so he goes ahead and marries uh leah who is known as kind of the unloved wife you know and then you have passages in Deuteronomy when talking about how if a, if a man has two wives and one is loved and the other one is unloved, but they both have children, what you do in that situation when you have two wives and you love one of them more, you know, and then you have this picture in the New Testament. Who are the heroes of faith in the New Testament? I would say you're probably going to see Jesus, check, okay, and maybe secondarily Paul, two men that lived their entire life single. Uh, and so I think that there's this picture of, of what this all looks like that is really tied up into who are the people that have had the most influence uh, and power. And it's traditionally been men in uh, married relationships. And you think particularly the influence of the U.S. since the 50s, that unit family, the rise of conservatism. It makes sense how all of a sudden we just accept that the Bible has a cohesive narrative on this. I think one place that this really shows itself is, you know, this, uh, the, the concept of, so for sodomy, what, you know, what it kind of took life as in American culture is a stand-in for gay sex. And there's a sense of like, it's just morally bankrupt because the reference of it. Yeah, it is, has negative connotations. Exactly. Yeah. It's because it's from the old, the old Testament, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, how Lot was there. And there was these people that uh, wanted to go in and, and um, uh, rape his guests and that 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 is somehow a standard for gay sex and therefore that gay sex is is on its face value morally bankrupt and we get that through this term sodomy but the truth is sodomy is that's not what it's talking about at all that story isn't about gay sex it's about gang rape that story is about a, an angry mob trying to take revenge and even as the bible itself is trying to interpret that story they, it, uh, what, the passage, it's interpreting it. Um, it uh, in Ezekiel. Ezekiel. Ezekiel, yeah. So Ezekiel yeah. references it later and does not describe that 
as a stand-in. It's cruelty it's, towards strangers. Yeah, exactly. that's, that's the it's, sin. Yeah, It's a matter of hospitality. It was the sense mm-hmm. of the way that they treated those outsiders. And so it's just this way that for us is, but of course, uh, take to the Bible that is infused with our culture uh, creates these really hurtful things, especially as we think about our single friends, we think about our LGBTQ friends, as we think about people who have experienced um, some real injury because we've just decided, oh, of course the Bible says that. And, and, and again, I, to me, I, I actually think there's a lot to say about same-sex, uh, opposite-sex marriage with kids and that being a safe and committed place for sex. That, like, that thumbs up for me. But at the other end of the spectrum is we cannot come in here and say, well, clearly that's what the Bible teaches. It, it is so far from clear uh, that the Bible has this clear sexual ethic. It's mostly that our American church culture has, has a cultural ethic that we have just decided the Bible is somehow talking about. Love this, love this. Another great example. All right, so Kyle, any final takeaways? I think uh, the biggest takeaway I would say is if you find yourself approaching the Bible and, and you hear, especially if you grew up like me, with this voice in the back of your head, with like, well, but of course the Bible is communicating this. And there's something about that that sits really poorly. I would take the advice of Jesus from the parable of the sower and, and pursue him in that. I think, you know, to me, uh, the, the experience of a God who is good and trustworthy for me to wrestle with questions uh, has been at the heart of, of a vibrant faith. And I know for me, it's been at the heart of a lot of these realizations around the Bible. I know for like uh, just one last quick one that has always been powerful. I gave a talk on this last year is this understanding that the Bible clearly communicates hell is this place of internal suffering for anybody who does not speak belief in Jesus. Whereas in the fact that that is actually really difficult to develop a sense of uh, an image and a theology of hell from the Bible. You can do it from Renaissance literature like Dante's Inferno, but like the words that are in the Bible that are actually translated to hell of Sheol, Hades, Tarsus, Gehenna, like the, the first, like Sheol and Hades, the, the Old Testament reference and the New Testament is a hell or just the place where everybody goes when they die. It's not a place of eternal suffering, certainly not in a, ter- a place of like people who don't believe in Jesus suffer. Or Gehenna, used in the New Testament, this is the one that most blew my mind. Gehenna was a literal place. It is a valley outside of Jerusalem where they burned trash. And in the times of the Old Testament, there was pagan child sacrifices. It's kind of like the metaphor for where uh, suffering happens. And so to me, it is good to wrestle with questions. It is good to ask yourself, is this consistent with a God that is actually good and trustworthy? And not just do that abstractly, but engage God directly. Because in those experiences, to me, that is where the Bible has come alive and not become this thing that I can't ask questions of. And it it speaks in these obvious ways that I just must accept, but actually a living thing that helps me engage with life better and makes me actually engage with Jesus directly. All right. Well, these are really good. Um, I, whether you've uh, sort of experienced some freedom uh, because of the content itself of what we're talking about with these references that we're going to, or whether you've experienced some freedom just from the unlearning experience like Kyle was sharing, uh, we hope that that stays with you, that maybe it invigorates a little bit of, uh, of desire to go to the Bible. Um, these kind of experiences, the, these like uh, these are just some of our favorites, but um, uh, I think Kyle and I could kind of get lost talking about these if we had a few papers in front of us for a long time. These sorts of experiences are why 
our church has a value on uh, digging into the scriptures regularly and kind of making that a, uh, a ground zero point for like, how do we develop our messaging here? Uh, and so hopefully you've gotten a taste of, uh, of um, some of the same uh, freeing experiences that we've had. Uh, that's all for this week's midweek podcast. Uh, until next week, we'll see you soon.